turn with me to Daniel 9. You're going, Daniel 9, really? Christmas, Daniel 9? Well, I can't think of anything more Christmassy than Daniel 9. In fact, uh, I bugged Beck all week, my son, who led worship today, uh, to make sure joy to the world uh, was on our uh, worship song today. And the reason I asked him to play that is because joy to the world, you've been singing it all this time, thinking it was about the first advent, with the first time Jesus came to the earth. Joy to the world is actually about the second advent when Jesus Christ comes back to the earth after the church age. And you've been singing it, and I've been singing it my whole life, and uh, didn't even recognize it. Well, so uh, you can examine that when you go home or uh, after we're done today. But uh, we're turning uh, to Daniel 9. And many of you, if you've studied prophecy, would know that uh, this is the backbone of biblical prophecy. That's what this is. This is where you start this book, and in particular, this chapter. And what you know that comes to your head immediately when we say Daniel 9 is that this is the 70 weeks prophecy. The funny part about that is, is that the 70 weeks prophecy of the 27 verses of Daniel 9 only takes up three or four verses. There's several verses uh, before, and uh, we're going to take a look at that and uh, see what we can come up with. And I'm going to read just the beginning of it, and then we'll pray, and um, we'll get into this. And that's this, Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, I think, or if somebody knows what it, it mean, how to say it, tell me later, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face as it is this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off in all the countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. Okay, we'll stop reading there and let's pray. Lord, we're going to need help uh, with this one. Uh, Christmas is coming. We all expect the Christmas sermon and yet... Lord, as we travel uh, through here, there's nothing more Christmassy than to see why it is your son came to the manger and what is happening in the future. And so, Lord, we uh, pray that you would bless our time here today, that you'd help us grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as we explore Daniel chapter 9. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as I've told you several times, or every time that we've come to the book of Daniel, uh, in order to understand what this book is all about, you sort of need to know who the players are. Uh, that's half the battle, I feel like, as I read the Old Testament. And here now we have another king, or uh, yeah, another king, but really we've seen him before. It's Darius the Mede. And remember, this uh, book has told us uh, from the time that it was be- is being written who the su- uh, successive or successor kingdoms are going to come on the scene in Daniel's day. Daniel's day is in the 500s BC. Remember, Daniel and his friends were taken out of the Jerusalem area in an exile to Babylon. That happened in this year, 605 BC. That's really important that you know that date. And remember, there were two other um, exiles that happened, one in 597 BC. Do you know who came out in 597 BC and was taken from Jerusalem up into Babylon? Ezekiel. Oh, wow, you guys are amazing out there. You're listening. Some people are listening. Good. Okay, so Ezekiel was taken in the second exile. And then, of course, the knockout punch when the Babylonians came in 586 BC, murdered uh, several hundred thousand and uh, desecrated the temple, just destroyed uh, the temple in 586 BC, the temple there in Jerusalem. Now, Daniel then, or God in his infinite wisdom and care for people, I love this. During the exile, he has a prophet for the courts of the politicians of the people who are the enemies of God, the Babylonians. That's Daniel and his friends. He has a prophet out among the countryside where the exiles are actually living to minister and to prophesy to them. And then he has this guy named Jeremiah. Ever heard of him? He's a prophet, the weeping prophet. He's back in the Jerusalem area ministering to the people who didn't get taken in the exile. It's fascinating that God covers all the people. Isn't that great? It's beautiful. He cares. Well, in the first year of this king, it's probably now, remember, Daniel comes out in 605 B.C., The first year of Darius the Mede, remember the Babylonians were in uh, 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 power at the beginning of this book, and now the Medes and the Persians wiped out the Babylonians in one night with the handwriting on the wall. So this is a king of the Medes and Persians. Remember last week, we also talked about the Grecian kingdom that's coming next, that's going to wipe out the Medes and Persians, and then ultimately the Romans. And when I was a little kid and I would read through the Bible... I was always scratching my head. Why are there Romans in a book about Israelis or Jewish people? And Daniel sort of tells you why that is, okay? So that happens, and, uh, but I, here's what I want you to remember. 605 BC, and now we're in about 538 BC, which puts Daniel in exile. I, I'm terrible at math. But listen to this, somewhere in the 65, 66, 67, 68 year range. You get what I'm saying? And Daniel went into exile when he was approximately 15. So this sets him at about 85 years old. He's an old man in this chapter. I want you to see that. So he's an old man 
And he's been there about 65 to 68 years. Everybody tracking with me? Okay. And it says here that Daniel understood by the books the number of years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah. Now time out. Before Daniel went into exile in Babylon, he lived in, in and around the Jerusalem area. And guess who would be prophesying at the time? Jeremiah. And he probably, although it's not confirmed in the Bible, but he probably had heard as a kid, as a young boy, maybe even been in the temple area when Jeremiah was prophesying. So he was familiar with Jeremiah. Get that? And Jeremiah started to write a book. In fact, in chapter 29 of the book of Jeremiah, we're told that Jeremiah wrote a letter that was sent up to Babylon. It's a very famous passage. So uh, here, Daniel, he knows something. He, you read it right here. Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of, Jer- uh, of Jerusalem. Now, you've got to know something. You, don't, won't, you will never understand this chapter if you don't understand this part. In the Old Testament, in Leviticus, okay, there's this thing that God did. <laughs> And God said, among a number of other laws to the Jews, he said this, you are to plant and reap and sow your harvest and your crops, your crops and your harvest, every six years, but on the seventh year, you're to leave it to rest, okay? So six years, plant, harvest, reap. If you do it right, on the sixth year, I'll give you double so you'll have enough for the seventh year. The problem is there's never any indication in the Old Testament that the the Jews ever adhered to that law. And they did this for a period of 490 years. And God said in 2 Chronicles, he said, you know what? You owe me 70 years because you didn't obey what I asked you to do, which is an interesting thing because sin, disobedience, It might not find you out immediately, but it always finds you out. So for 490 years in the Old Testament, they were required to have a Sabbath year, and they never did it. So look at this. With that background, just turn with me to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 25. As we see Daniel in Babylon searching the scriptures, he reads and knows these two things. Jeremiah 25, 11. Look at this. Jeremiah 25, 11. It says this. And the whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. He's talking about his own country is going to be chastised by an enemy of God, and they're going to serve and be in Babylon for 70 years. Now turn over to Jeremiah 29, not 11 people. Jeremiah 29:10. Go over there. Jeremiah 29 verse 10. Let me get there. <laughs> I'm here, but I can't see the numbers. Isn't that bad? Oh, here it is. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. 
And then I'll read it because I know you love it. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Isn't that amazing? So here's what I want you to see. This great prophet Daniel just read, or excuse me, read all those years ago, 538 BC. Do you realize that Daniel was looking at the same scriptures you just looked at right now? Isn't that incredible? And what he knew from the scriptures is that God had made a promise to put them in Babylon for 70 years. Now, I'm not real smart, but I know 67 isn't 70. And so here, Daniel, knowing the word of God, very studious about the word of God, he wouldn't have this like we have it in this wonderfully bound book. He would have to search through the letters and the script and the scrolls and all that sort of thing. He's searching the scriptures and he knows there's a promise from God that in 70 years, I'm going to bring you back. And he's been there 67 years. You get it? And so uh, the first thing that I want you to see about Daniel, who we think of as this amazing saint, and he was and is, he is this amazing saint, but he has the same thing available you have the word of God by the power of the spirit. And he searched the scriptures and he searched and he searched and he gets ready to pray. And we'll talk about the prayer in a minute. And guess what he does? He bases his prayer not on how he's feeling or what's best for him. He bases his prayer on what glorifies God and the promises of God. Are you getting that? So he's a serious student of the scriptures and he bases prayer, which goes hand in glove with prayer, scriptures, prayer, word of God, prayer, hand in glove, Acts 6-4, go there sometime. They go hand in glove. Your Bible reading, your Bible searching nourishes your prayer life. You get that? If you've never read the book, O Hallisby, oh, I get another plug for the book. You need to run out and grab O Hallisby's book on prayer, just a wee little book, just small. He gives this, or he talks about um, uh, so many things in that book that'll nourish your soul. Just get it. Uh, I know that they're on their way. We've ordered more, but I don't think they're here yet. Is that true? They're not here yet. Right. So, but go and get it or wait till we get it. Just a beautiful book on prayer. And he talks about the word of God nourishing his soul. Also, there's a man named George Mueller. You ever heard of George Mueller? Yeah, you heard of George Mueller. George Mueller uh, uh, relied on no fundraising whatsoever. He only relied upon prayer and God to supply his needs, to open hundreds, I don't know if it was hundreds, but many, 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 many orphanages in England. And he only uh, uh, relied upon God through prayer. And one of the things that Mueller says, when they asked him, how do you pray? When you, when you get up in the mornings, what do you do? He said, I, I, I can't pray unless I'm reading my Bible. And what I do is I read through the Bible, and when the Lord speaks to me about a certain verse, I'll meditate on that verse. That's what George Mueller says. And then it just leads me naturally into prayer. The Bible nourishes my soul for my prayer life. And so here, what I really want you to see is that this man 
Daniel, who has the same thing we have, the word of God, was a student of the scriptures. He could probably, if anybody in the Bible could probably say, you know what, I can skip Wednesday night or, you know, come on, you know, I know the book of Jeremiah, I'm Daniel. But that's not what he was like. He searched and he kept diligent in the word. Charles Spurgeon said this about the study of the Bible. I'll read it to you. Is it even Sunday unless you quote Spurgeon, right? Here it is. Oh, that you studied your Bibles more, Charles Spurgeon said. Oh, that we all did. How we could plead the promises. How often we should prevail with God when we can hold him to his word and say, fulfill this word unto thy servant, whereon thou hast caused me to hope. Oh, it is grand praying when our mouth is full of God's word, for there is no word that can prevail with him like his own. Here it is, Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, speaking on his own devotional life and the importance of the word of God going hand in glove and nourishing your prayer life. Now, what is prayer? We're going to see a prayer here. What is prayer? See, that's why I love the Hallisby book. It takes all the pressure off. Every book you read about prayer is do more, be better, get up early, spend more time. And of course, that's fantastic because you're communicating with the Lord. But here's what Hallisby says prayer is. is just opening the door of your heart, Revelation 3.20, and inviting God into your helplessness. Period. That's prayer. And who here has ever felt helpless about something? See, Daniel here is sort of just so human, isn't he? He knows the promises, but he wants to know more. God, what have we done here? What's going on here? It just seems, I haven't seen my family in 67 years. I've been up here, and, and when are we going back? And is it true that we're going to do 70 years? And how will we do it? I mean, how will the caravan take place? And what's your plan for that? He had all these questions. In other words, Daniel was just opening up his questions his helplessness, and asking God to come in and help. That's prayer. Well, look what he does. Here's a posture of prayer. As we take the first half of this verse and just look at what prayer is like, it says, he set my face toward the Lord God. There's this focus. There's this concentration. There's this purposefulness that Daniel has, uh, that is uh, set forth right here. He set his face towards the Lord. He had a purpose in life. His purpose in life was not to get up and watch, or, you know, watch all the notifications on his phone about ESPN and how many uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, yards this guy passed for or that, how many goals that guy scored or anything. When, when he got up in the morning, his face was towards the Lord. How do I know that? Because earlier in this book, it says that he prayed three times a day, morning, noon, and night. This was a man, not that he had to do this, there's not prescriptive, he, he didn't have to do this, but he enjoyed the communion with God himself. He had seen the beauty of the Lord, and oh, by the way, as a little rabbit trail and a time out. Isn't it fascinating? In this book, there's no discussion like people like David of any of the sinfulness of Daniel. Now that doesn't mean Daniel wasn't a sinner. Of course he was a sinner. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But in this book, we don't see sin. Da read David's book. 
It's first, second Samuel, buddy. Read that book. It's like, whoa, TMI here. I mean, it's sin upon sin upon sin, and they, you know, got after it in that regard. But here, no. And I wonder if part of this, the Lord is preaching and showing us, is that a devotional life leads to a life that is Christ-like, God-like, or godly. And, and I think so. So he sets his face. That's one thing that he does. He has a purpose. In Hallisby's book, you know what he says the most important part of prayer is? Planning for it. Because the night before, you know, you stay up and watch whatever you watch or do or whatever, and then you don't feel like getting up in the morning, and then the next thing you know, you're at work, and by the time you've uh, uh, had it, you know, four days have gone by or six days have gone by or whatever, and you haven't met with the Lord or I haven't met with the Lord, but he set his face. Hallisby says, plan it to make request, what? By prayer and supplication. Prayer, just talking with God, just praising God. That's prayer. Supplication, asking for supply. That's what Daniel was doing. He needed to, some answers. He needed the supply of the answers. And look what he did. Look at his posture in prayer. He fasted. Well, what's fasting? It's not some mysterious thing. And here's what I'd like you to write down right now. Get this out of your thinking. Fasting isn't to make you some spiritual dynamo or saint or to gain favor with God. It's not that at all. You're not going to be any more favorable at the end of a week-long fast than you were than when you began. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. I mean, how much more can he love you? <laughs> so fasting isn't to get God's favor. Fasting is just when you have something of spiritual significance that you want to just focus on the Lord for a time and draw near to him. You get rid of the distractions. And of course, in this case, it probably meant food. Some of you are like, we ain't doing that. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Probably me first. No chocolate, right? Right. But anyway, or whatever. But you know, in today's uh, world, why not fast from social media? Or why not fast from your phone? Or whatever. When you have something of spiritual importance you want to bring to the Lord. Uh, Beck has asked us in the Winter Way stuff. He put out a schedule of what to pray for for Winter Way, a teen youth conference on January 7th. And on Thursdays, he asked that we fast. Why? To gain favor with the Lord? No. So that we could invest our time on Thursdays or whenever it is you choose to fast to spend it and uh, separate the fleshly from the spiritual to ask Lord to bless the Winter Way Conference. That's Thursdays. You can look at the thing back there. That's just one example of anything. Oh, look at what else he did. He put on sackcloth. You know what sackcloth would be? It'd be like a burlap sack against your smooth skin. Wouldn't that be awful? It'd just be pricking you all the time, right? And some people say that they would even turn these things inside out so it'd be even more prickly. And why would they do that? It would do it so that you wouldn't be comfortable. He doesn't want you to be fleshly comfortable in a sense, or excuse me, Daniel doesn't want himself to be, he wants to be focused on spiritual things. That's what that's saying. Ashes mean he was in a state of mourning, and you're going to see here in a minute what he was mourning about as he prayed. But let me ask you something. There's some people here today who are mourning. You may have lost someone this year, but you really didn't lose them, by the way. They just went to be with the Lord. Yeah, Amen. And you might be mourning about that. 
But you could be mourning about a relationship or people in your family have kind of gone astray. Or maybe you know deep down in your heart you haven't been with the Lord this year or the last five years or whatever, and you want to come back to the Lord. Well, this is something that you would do. You just simply pray in this posture. And watch this. I just want you to see that I prayed to the Lord my God and watch another key ingredient of prayer. If you had to put the ingredients to prayer, what order do you do them in? Well, a lot of people do it a lot of different ways. But how about this? Try adoration first. Try confession second. Try thanksgiving next. And try supplication after that. And then you got acts and you can always remember it. But here, what is one thing that you do is you praise the Lord first, but then you get to a time that you make confession. And what's fascinating about this confession that Daniel makes is there's no indication that Daniel was involved in the things that the people of Judah were involved in for the reason that they were poured out. And yet he constantly is saying, we, we did this, we did that. Now, if you don't know this, know Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26 in the Old Testament. What, is, what are those two chapters? Those two chapters are the, the blessings God enumerates if you follow his commandments in the Old Testament. But don't forget, it's also the curses that God sets forth if you don't follow his commandments. And guess what was at the end of that list? I'll put you in exile. Now he tried everything. Curse, small little curse, small little curse, medium little curse, medium little curse. But he knew maybe that they wouldn't listen. And so he put out the blessing and the curses of the Old Testament. And the last one is, I'll put you in exile. If I have to do it, I'll do it. That's what he was saying. Interesting, right? And now when you come to this, watch what David does or excuse me, Daniel does, he makes confession and says, Lord, great and awesome God. See that? He starts with praise. He starts with the character of God. God is truly great and awesome. Who here says awesome a lot? I raised my hand. Yeah, there's one awesome, and that's the Lord. Oh, Lord, great and awesome God. Watch this, who keeps his covenant. You see that? Daniel knew he was going to keep the covenant. Jeremiah, he had studied. He knew the blessings and the curses. He kept his covenant. And you're, but listen, you're going to have mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. And then here goes Dan- Daniel. We have sinned and committed iniquity. What was the iniquity? They didn't take the Sabbath rest. And one more thing, they committed idolatry on grand scales. And the Lord said, you're going to have to go to Babylon. You didn't obey. So here... This man, who could have blown it off because he's some high sh- a highfalutin, hotshot prophet, he didn't blow it off. He studied the scriptures, and he prayed according to the scriptures. And here, he goes, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We've done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Now, I want you to just take a time out for all of us in the political world. I know it's dangerous, right? Mixing religion and politics. Here's how we tend to pray. Those people on that side of the aisle are despicable. Change them. Knock them out. Get them out of my face. And then we'll all be happy. That's not how he prayed. He said, we have sinned. Our country has sinned and committed iniquity. We've done wickedly and rebelled. It's us. It's us. 
It's us. It's us. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you. Do you see it? He's praying the character and promises of God. That's what praying is. Someone has rightly said, praying is not to get your will done in heaven. Praying is to get God's will done on earth. When we go into prayer, it's not so much to move the Lord. It's so that our will aligns with his will. And here, Daniel knows that he's righteous and will do right things. And it belongs to him. But to us, because of our iniquity and our rebellion, it's shame. It doesn't sound too far away from today as we rebel against the Lord. As it this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far in all countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. And here's what I want to show you. I know it was long-winded. It's 1138. But now you understand what he's talking about. The iniquity and the unfaithfulness of the people of Judah caused God to put them into exile. And now, Daniel, coming to the end of the 70 years, is praying the promises of God to bring them back to Jerusalem. And it's a pattern of how we're to pray. And it says here in verse 8, O Lord, to us belongs shame of face to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we've sinned against you. To the Lord our God, look at this, belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. See, that's where to pray. Mercy and forgiveness. It's funny, especially in this era, we love judgment and wrath when it pertains to somebody else, especially if they don't believe what we believe. But we love mercy and forgiveness for us. But it's hard for us to pray it for other people when they don't align with everything we align with. Here, I want you to see this. Daniel includes himself in this and says, we all need the mercy and forgiveness of God, which protects us against something that all of us do. If I'm a good little boy or a good little girl, God, if I come to Bible study, if I go to uh, put money in the box, if I uh, come to the corporate prayer time on Sunday nights, if I do all of that, then then Lord, you're going to have to do what I ask. That's how we think. Instead of saying, Lord, in your mercy and forgiveness, not based on anything that I bring to the table, Lord, in your mercy and forgiveness, based on your promises and your character, Lord, do this, help here. You see the difference of the prayer? Wow, well here we're getting a correction. We're getting a, an idea what it's like to really pray according to the scriptures. We haven't, verse 10, obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Watch this. Now you know the story. Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. We didn't do what you asked. We didn't follow the Sabbath years. We didn't uh, stay away from idolatry. We didn't keep you first in our lives. No, we didn't do any of that. We deserve the curses. But Lord, even though we deserve the curses, I, Daniel, am pleading based on mercy and forgiveness. See it? Wow, powerful prayer. 
Okay, so now watch this. And he has, verse 12, confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges, who judge us by bringing upon us a great disaster. For under the whole heaven, such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem, to Jerusalem. Uh, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. And you go, well, come on, they really didn't do this? Well, in the New Testament, James says, one of the reasons your prayers are never answered, duh, because I don't ask. And when I do ask, I ask amiss. Here, he tells them again, you never even talked to me about this. You just went your own way. Therefore, verse 14, the Lord has kept the disaster in mind. Of course he did. It's a promise. If you don't do that in the Old Testament, you're going to go into exile and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. It's like me going down to the local bar, uh, knocking back 10 uh, shots and some beers, praying just right before I get in the car, Lord, help me from hurting anybody. I just need to get back to Pleasant Hills. And then getting in the car and killing somebody and say, God, I can't believe you let me do that. And I'm sad and mad at you. Whose fault would that be? Of course, it would be mine. And that's what the Lord's, or that's what Daniel's saying here to the Lord. You're righteous. How dare us comment on you and how you work because everything you do is righteous. And we know this chastisement is for our good, according to Daniel. And how, O Lord, our God, verse 15, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it was or as it is this day, we have sinned and we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your uh, fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem. There's two more characteristics of God, by the way. Anger and fury. Praise the Lord that Jesus took them on the cross. Your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all around us. In other words, you know one of the things that Daniel now is starting to pray? And by the way, uh, I think Hallowsby and uh, Andrew Murray, who wrote a, a great work on a prayer, indicate and say, and I think they're right, that the number one purpose of prayer Ready for it? It's spelled out in John 14, 16, is to glorify God. And here, that's what he's saying. May you be glorified here. May your name be great, Lord, uh, as you save the, your people and bring them back. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer, verse 17, of your servant and his supplications. And for the Lord's sake, do you see how many times he prays that? Cause your face to shine on your sanctuary. Remember, their sanctuary is in ruins. When they go back, Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, all those people are going to start building the temple, and then they'll build the city, which is desolate. Okay, verse 18. Oh, my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present... Uh, our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds. Remember this. Oh, I've been such a good little boy. I've been to all these Bible studies this year. Bless me, Lord. That's not how we come to the Lord. We don't come because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. That's how we approach the Lord. 
so wonderful. Isn't it incredible? It ties right into the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. What does poor in spirit mean? It means you just recognize, I just recognize, we're spiritually bankrupt. And remember, I've told you this story often. You know, a lot of times in the morning when I get to work, I work as a lawyer downtown Pittsburgh, I recognize that I haven't prayed about what I'm going to do that day in my work, which is sort of a shortcut of telling God, Lord, I got this. I don't really need you. I've been a lawyer since 92. I know how to do this, which is totally whack and totally skewed and totally off base because I need Lord every day, all day. He's my all in all. He's given me the ability to do it and to go there and to do these things and to glorify him. And how could I not? When I'm a prayerless person, it's totally a slam and a lack of faith. Here, it's not because of my righteous deeds. No, it's because of his great mercies. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, listen and act. Don't delay for your own sake. My God, for your city and your people are called by your name. That's it. That's the cincture. Your name is at stake here, Lord. He's not threatening the Lord. He just recognizes it. And your name is good and graceful and faithful, and you will fulfill your promise. Because of your name, because of your character. That's what he's saying. Why do you think you pray in Jesus' name? It's not a magic formula. I forgot to say it. Uh Uh-oh, he's not going to give it to me. No, it's not because of that. You're praying in the character and nature and according to the will of God through Jesus Christ. Now watch. Now we get to the part that's very famous. But I want you to see Daniel is a very, very interesting book. I don't know that I've seen it before this last time now that we're teaching it or this current time that we're teaching it. It's the mix of devotion and piety with prophecy. And this is heavy prophecy. And so, you know, in the Christian church, there's a lot of people who like to do the devotions, like to do the YouTube version. What's that that thing called? Not the Blue Letter Bible? U version, like to do the U version and the new blue letter Bible and the uh, day by day by grace and love to do devotions and they thrive in that. But then they look across the aisle and see prophecy and say, oh no, don't pay attention to that. That's wacky. And then there's people on this side of the aisle. That's all they want to ever talk about. Prophecy, 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 prophecy. And they're, you know, like Pavlov's dogs. And, you know, I don't know, devotions. I got to, you know, listen to this guy or that guy. or You know the type. And the Bible here is showing us that this prophecy and devotion in Daniel's life went together like this. And his devotional life fueled his prayers. And God responded back to him with this grand and glorious prophecies. And so that it was practical. The way Daniel lived his life is because he knew what was coming. That's a word for us. There's a reason to study prophecy. It's not so you can know this and know that and know that and go down that rabbit trail. And if you like to do that, don't feel bad. That's okay. But the reason you're studying prophecy is to find God in all of it. And understand his plans and purpose so that you could be effective witness for people out there and still be close to the Lord. All right, here comes the prophecy. By the way, 
This is amazing. Before we get into it, Daniel prays, what's going to happen now, Lord? Guess what the Lord does? He goes, oh, I'm going to answer your prayer by giving you the entire history of the world. Oh, okay. I didn't even ask for it. And Ephesians 3 tells us something beyond all that we ask or think or can even grasp. That's what a good father, our father, does for us. And here we see it just in the prayer answer. Lord, what's going to happen to us as we go back to Israel or back to Judah and Jerusalem? Oh, how about you just, I just give you everything? Okay, sounds good. So while I was speaking, interesting, seems to me, you could make an argument against it, I guess, but it seems to me that Daniel is by himself and praying out loud. That's fascinating. You ever been praying in the car and somebody looks over at you and you're like, what is going on over there? Now, while I was speaking, I was praying and I was confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, who I had seen at the vision of the beginning, over in chapter 7, I believe, uh, Gabriel uh, 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 gives some information to Daniel. But you know who else or where else we see Gabriel? Fascinating. We see Gabriel at Christmas time. We read it all the time. Here you go. This priest named Zacharias has a wife named Elizabeth. And while he's in the temple area, a guy named Ga- or an angel named Gabriel comes and tells him he's going to have a son, and you better name him John, and it's John the Baptist. Oh, by the way, the mom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ also received word from Gabriel that she was going to have the Messiah, the chosen one. It seems like, isn't this interesting, that Gabriel is a messenger that has a specific, consistent message. The Messiah is coming. Ah, what's this prophecy about? Well, watch this. So yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, who I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Now, I just want you to see something about the answer. He got the answer before the prayer was over almost. (laughs) Time out, Daniel. I'm here. I got the answer. And he came swiftly, and he wants Daniel to know that the message is, I want you to understand this. And he says, I don't know that I remembered this all this time. You are greatly loved, Daniel. Have you ever stopped to think about this? How does God show us his love? Well, of course, the greatest and the best at the cross and his resurrection. Praise God. If you feel unloved, go look at the cross. But in practical ways, as you grow in Christ and live a Christian life, here's another way, and I don't know if you've ever considered it. One way, God shows you love. You ever been reading a scripture or had a pastor going through the scriptures and uh, doing uh, the teaching, and you know, you've read something a million times in the Bible, and then you get to this place, and boom, the Lord gives you something, and it just 
a slightly different way. It doesn't mean the truth's distorted. It just means, wow, you come to a fuller understanding of what that scripture means. You ever stop to think about something? You're not just getting the understanding so you can be a great understander. It's because God loves you. A dad wants to give you the answers and wants you to understand and wants you to take part and wants you to be involved. The next time that happens for you, next time that happens for me, let's stop and say, wow, I'm loved. Amazing. So here's what it is. Understand the vision. Here it is. 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Now watch. 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city, and now he's going to give six purposes that God is going to accomplish in whatever this 70 weeks is. The other thing I want you to see is that this 70 weeks prophecy has to do with Daniel's people. Who's Daniel's people? They're the Jewish people. They're Israel. And it has to do with the holy city. Now, I'm not real smart, but I can figure that one out. That's Jerusalem. So you have 70 weeks determined for your people, the Israelis or the Jews, and for your holy city. And these are the six purposes that God's going to do in 70 weeks. And we're going to talk about what 70 weeks is here in a minute. Finish the transgression. All the apostasy and sin of Israel will be put away and will be no more. And to make an end of sins. And if you look at uh, Ezekiel 37 and Zechariah 5 and Romans 11, 20 through 27, one of the purposes for the nation of Israel is that at the second advent, the second coming, I'm giving you a little hint here about what 70 weeks is, at the second coming of Christ, there's going to be an end of sins. And there's going to be a reconciliation or atonement for iniquity. And that's all going to be put away. And you could look at Zechariah 3, 5 and 9 and 13, 3. And then those are negative things that the Lord's going to sort of accomplish or clear up the negative things, I guess you could say. But watch this. After 70 weeks or at the end of 70 weeks, watch this. There's going to be everlasting righteousness. Now, I just got to ask you, I know there's some people that disagree with this, but do you feel like there's everlasting righteousness right now? No, of course not. It's coming in the future. And to seal up the vision and prophecy, in other words, all prophecy is going to be complete at the end of 70 weeks. And to anoint the most holy, which is speaking of a temple, hmm, that's interesting, that's going to be in 70 weeks. Now watch, time out, just listen. We got about 10 more minutes, 15, 20, 25, <laughs> Make it an hour. <laughs> there we go. But here, here, I just, you got to tune in here because this is a lot of mental gymnastics. And I know it's early and I know it's cold, but this will bless your socks off. And here it is. What are 70 weeks? Well, if you go back, this actually says 77s in the Hebrew. And it's sort of like, what is a week? It's sort of like saying decade. To us, a decade is 10 years, right? But it's talking about one year, two year, three year, you know, third year, fourth year. But when you talk about the decade, you talk about a 10-year unit 
of time. You know back in Genesis 29, the first time a week is mentioned. It's really in a famous story. Do you know the story about Rachel and Leah and how Jacob wanted to marry Rachel, but the dad, Laban, switched the wives at uh, marriage and he got Leah? (laughs) It's really funny. He calls Leah's name means tender eyes, which anyway, tender on the eyes, but whatever. And Jacob wakes up and goes, what? I worked seven years and you switch the brides and the dad comes in and says, oh, listen, it's just a sort of a custom, but I got good news for you. If you fulfill one more week, you can have Rachel. And guess what he's talking about when he says week? Is he talking about days or is he talking about years? He's talking about years. It's the way in which sort of A Hebrew could say, the Jews could say, decade, but they use seven years for decade. You get it? And so if you believe that and think that, 70 weeks, listen to this, are 70 sevens. And here you go. If it's it's years, then we're talking about 490 years. 400 and 90 years, and at the end of 490 years, your people in your holy city, there's going to be six purposes, we read through them, that are gonna be accomplished. Now go on to verse 25. Know therefore and understand. Now I get it. Some of you are saying, I wish he wouldn't do Daniel 9 today. I want some mangers and some shepherds and some gifts. But here's the point about this prophecy. The Lord is telling us to know and to understand this prophecy. That from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, that's the first prince, there's going to be seven weeks and 62 weeks. And I'm not good at math, but I can do that. 69 weeks. Everybody with me? So you have to find out, what is this decree that the prophecy is talking about? There's four decrees that are mentioned when the Jews are coming back from Babylon. The first three are in Ezra. And every time there's a decree in Ezra, Cyrus gives a decree to Ezra in 1 and chapter 5. Darius gives a decree to Ezra in Ezra chapter 6. And a guy named Artaxerxes, Mede, uh, gives a uh, decree in Ezra chapter 7. Listen, listen, this is important. Every one of those decrees say, okay, go back and build your temple. So when you look down here, it says there are going to be seven weeks and 62 weeks, but not to rebuild the temple there, to rebuild the desecrated streets and the wall Okay, there's one more decree. And it's found in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. A guy, king named Artaxerxes, made a decree that gave Nehemiah permission and passage and supplies to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and the walls. And so that is most likely the best choice for when the decree was issued for the 70 weeks time clock to start. By the way, if you've been to this church before, I always have you hold up your watch. 
you do hold up your watch and you go, what, are you holding, what am I holding my watch up for? It's because I believe, we believe, that the timepiece of God is the nation of Israel. It's the clock. And so there's 70 weeks for the nation of Israel, for God's people and for the holy city. And the clock is going to start, watch this, at the time that the decree is issued, which was Nehemiah chapter 2, which we know for a number of reasons that I'm not going to go in here today, March 14th, 445 B.C. March 14th, 445 B.C., when the Jews were now ready to come back and to build the wall. Everybody just hold on. And so it took about 49 years. Do you notice that it says seven years first? Uh, it says uh, uh, there shall be seven weeks first and then 62 weeks. Well, most people believe that first 49 years is that first seven weeks period. Everybody tracking. Now there's 62 more weeks so that we can get to 69. You get that? Seven weeks and 62 weeks is 69 weeks. That's 483 years. Now watch. But I thought you said there are 70 weeks for the Jewish people. There are 70 weeks. And you and I are charged today in the next five minutes to find where the extra weeks are. Because here's why. If you fast forward until April 6, 32 AD, that's 483 years, it's 173, 880 days, listen, listen to me, that's the exact day, 483 years, in which Jesus rode in to Jerusalem as the triumphal entry. Do you remember that? Yeah, that's exactly right. So we know that in 483 years from the time that Nehemiah, or excuse me, uh, uh, Artaxerxes and Nehemiah said you could go back to the exact day was the day Jesus was riding into Jerusalem to announce himself as the Messiah. So know therefore and understand from that the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah. Are you getting this? Look, turn with me to Luke 19, which is the triumphal entry. I want you to see this. Uh, Luke 19, real quick. Look at verse 41. Now you know all this. He's entered on a colt. They borrowed it, all that. He started riding in. And they said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And Jesus answered, look in verse 40, uh, some of the Pharisees call from the crowd and say, Jesus, rebuke your disciples for equating you with the Messiah. And Jesus says, well, I tell you, if those should keep silent, well, the stones will have to cry out. And why is that? Because Jesus goes on to say, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. Why was he weeping over the city? Yes, of course, it's in sin, but there's another reason. If you had known, you were supposed to understand and have knowledge of, if you had known, uh, even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace, what? That the Messiah has arrived. 
They were to know the day. Look down in verse 44. And level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave you in one stone upon another. Watch this. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. Why in the world was Jesus weeping when he came up over and looking down over Jerusalem? Well, one of the reasons was because they didn't understand the prophecy in Daniel that told them the day that he'd be riding into Jerusalem. That's amazing. So here you have it. So until Messiah, the prince, there's going to be seven weeks and 62 weeks. By my count, that's 69 weeks or 483 years. We know when that happened, when Jesus rode in uh, on a donkey and uh, the street, uh, the walls will be built again, etc. And watch this. And then verse 26, but says after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And that's just another way of saying destroyed or killed The Messiah then, after the 69 weeks, is going to be killed. And you saw that. He died on the cross. You know this. And the people of the prince who is to come. Now, it doesn't say the prince who is to come. It says the people of the prince who is to come. And if you know the principles of what we've been talking about up until Daniel chapter 9, we have said that we currently live in the church age. At at any point, God's going to come in the clouds for his church and catch them up. And then the covenant is going to be made. We'll see it here in a minute. And it's going to start the period called the uh, uh, time of Jacob's trouble, a seven-year period called the tribulation period. And inside of that, there's going to be this great statesman or person who's going to make a covenant with Israel and maybe others. And it's going to seem to solve the Middle East peace crisis. But in the middle of that time, this person, this second prince, who the Bible calls later the son of perdition, the man of sin, the Antichrist, the beast in different places... He's going to set himself up in the temple and ask you to worship him. If you're here, if you're the church, you're already in heaven. Look at this. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And what's that all about? Because this is what that's all about. In 70 AD, that's after the triumphal entry by, you know, 70 some years. Watch this. The Romans came into Jerusalem and wrecked the, other, the, the temple. And it's saying that the prince, consistent with what we've already learned in the book of Daniel, is going to come from a revived Roman empire. And remember, Rome is responsible for the way in which Europe is divided up, or the vestiges of that. Okay, now watch. And the end of it shall be with a flood. It's going to, when you see what happened, it was like a flood. Like everything was knocked down. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Watch this. Verse 27. Then he's going to confirm a covenant with many for one week. Now we believe there's a gap between 26 and 27. And that's where the seventh week or excuse me, 70th week of Daniel is found. The 70th week of Daniel is the period of tribulation where God deals with his Jewish people. Remember, this prophecy is for uh, Daniel's people and for the holy city, and pours out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. 
That's the tribulation period. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. We believe it's in the future, and that's the seventh week. And for many reasons, we believe it's in the future. When we were in Daniel 2 and we saw the smashing stone that set up an eternal kingdom, we discussed many of the reasons why we believe that's future. You can see that tape or come to me after, and I'll, I'll talk. All right. We're almost done. That's my cue. They're saying, get off the stage. <clears throat> But what's going to set off the tribulation period? It's a covenant with many for one week. That's another way of saying many of his people, which is the Israeli folks. But in the middle of the week, he's going to bring an end to the sacrifices and offerings. Listen, the whole seven-year period is a period of wrath in essence. It's the same. But he's going to try and fool people for about half of the period of the seven years, this Antichrist. And at the middle of it, after he's gained some favor with the Israeli people and others, he's going to do something that we saw in the last chapter, Antiochus Epiphanes, the Seleucian king, which foreshadowed the Antichrist, he's going to do this. He's going to take some sort of image, he's going to set it up in the temple, it's going to be an image of himself as he tries to be God and say, you worship me. And if you don't, that's the tribulation period. And he's going to bring an end to the sacrifices and offerings, which, oh boy, that would be bad. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, uh, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate or the desolator. What's that mean? Here's what it means, and we come full circle to joy to the world. It means that at the end of this seven-year period, Jesus Christ is going to come back with, to the earth, who with? With you and I, the saints who are in heaven, and he's going to rule and reign in Jerusalem, and he's going to wipe this system out. And he's going to establish his rule and reign for a thousand years. And after that, the new heavens and the new earth. And that's the point of joy to the world. It's so big and so beautiful. So what does it mean for you? Here's what it means. The Bible tells us that prophecy, prophecy is not just something to like have as a hobby. The Bible says it's a purifying doctrine, which means the way in which we think about prophecy should impact how we live today. And the first thing that I think Daniel 9 tells you is, is if you did one thing this year, it's that you would cultivate your devotional life. I would cultivate my devotional life, that I would spend more time uh, just talking and going about my business and life with God in communion, that I wouldn't push him out of my life, that if something's too busy for my life, maybe I should cut that out and get back to the basics. That's first. And then I think what it says is that it, makes me want to be on my knees, face down, praying for people who don't know the Lord. Because the Bible says we're going to be caught up in the clouds before the tribulation period. I don't want any of my friends or family, but listen to what else I'm saying, or any of my enemies to be in that period. 
And with everything we have together as a church, just this little body, look at this little body in West Elizabeth, PA, with everything we have with the church, everybody that we know, everybody that we come in contact with, we share the good news of Jesus Christ. Give them an opportunity to surrender their life to Christ so that they'll spend eternity with him and not separated from him. Doesn't that make you want to do that when you know the kingdom is coming? Yeah. So, let's live joy and expressible, filled up with the Lord, praying and counting on and trusting, but also going out to the streets wherever God has called you to share his good news and love. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Well, Lord, we come together as brothers and sisters, and we do. We pray, Lord, that you would fill us afresh here today. That you would, Lord, move us out from here, out into the streets, wherever it is we go. We pray, Lord, you give us many opportunities to share your love and light with a hurting world, a lonely world, a confused world. Thank you, Lord, that you give us understanding by your love. Lord, build us up to go out as humble servants, as you're the captain of our salvation, and we know it. (laughs) We want to represent you well as ambassadors. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.